Hello, everybody, and welcome to the AMPM podcast. My name is Manny Coates, and I will be your host. And this is the show where we discuss all things Amazon private label and how to generate recurring revenue streams 24 hours per day during the AM and the PM, hence the name of the show. Get it? AM, PM podcast. As a matter of fact, I just bought this supercharging power bar from Anchor that can charge my cell phone up something like 10 times in a row. And while I was admiring its awesomeness, I was making money. How cool is that? Pretty cool, I think. Hello, everybody. I am here with Sophie Howard. She's from New Zealand and started selling on Amazon about three years ago. She hit $1 million in sales in the first year on a product that broke all the mainstream rules. Sophie has sold one of her Amazon accounts for seven figures and another for multiple six figures, all by developing premium private label brands on Amazon. And we're going to get into all of that in just a minute. Sophie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Manny. Lovely to be here. So you're in uh, New Zealand. You said uh, just before we started this, it's summery. It's beautiful there. It's winter over here. Yep. Midsummer, opposite time of day to you, opposite time of the year. Yeah. And yeah, great lifestyle. Really, really cool place to live. I'm originally from the UK. I've been out here since nearly 20 years now and no going back. Just such a great place to live. Awesome. Awesome. Well, in, in 60 seconds or less, uh, sum up how you even got into selling on Amazon. Uh, so I was doing the normal day job thing, but had young children at home. So um, pretty sick of working part time, hard work. Good pay, but still not really making a headway on the mortgage. So I did one of those big courses, ignored all the rules in it, and uh, launched my own product while I was still working and juggling kids, and it streaked off, so I just kept doing more of what was working. Awesome. How many hours a day would you say you work right now? I reckon. I just added up my calendar for next week's eight hours. and It's how many? It's probably eight hours work a week and maybe 20 in a busy week. I do travel a lot, though, so I was just saying before the – uh, we started recording this. I've got 14 international trips next year, all for, I think one's fun, but mostly businessy type things. So I travel a lot, but when I'm home, I'm, you know, properly home and we've got a three-year-old and six-year-old. So nice to kind of have a pretty passive income stream. Yeah. Thank you very much, Amazon. <laughs> I know, right? Sounds great. And do you sell mainly in uh, in the US uh, marketplace or do you sell worldwide? What do you do? Yes. So oh, interesting times on that front. So been mainly in the US so far. My UK and Europe never fired. Like, I don't know if it was just the products I had. My best sellers in the States never really took off there. The fees are a bit nasty. The admin's a bit boring. Um, it looked like easy picking. So I'm from the UK. So it's like, I've got a home advantage here. I know how Brits think. I've got, you know, banking still set up from years ago, but it never actually was that profitable. So I'm now doing Amazon Australia. So I've got my first shipment heading there. They just are sort of in the middle of opening right now, sort of late November. Um, and I've just been to India as well. So India, I source a lot of products from, but I've got an Indian company, an Indian Amazon account, an Indian business partner, because you've got to have an Indian resident as a director on a company to trade there. So going to have a little bit of a play there as well, just to see what happens. But there's a pretty wealthy middle class. They're all getting onto credit cards. Amazon's just spent $3 billion setting up there. So I think that's a pretty interesting market to sell to as well as buy nice products from. It sounds like it. What kind of products would you get from uh, India, for example, that you wouldn't get from China? Um, so I've hardly had any of my products from China, actually. Um, but I've just been to a big trade show. I took 27 of my coaching clients to the big Delhi Autumn Fair. And that's a big handicrafts and giftware fair. So I think those kind of handmade products, Amazon's 
pretty keen to take down Etsy, I'm guessing, since they're really promoting their handmade things. So great, really beautiful products there, but impossible to track them down. So none of those suppliers had websites. You know, they were just at the show. You weren't allowed to take photographs. Uh, I mean, if you didn't get a business card and an email, there's no way you'd find those people again. So really unique products, but kind of premium, you know, really um, beautifully designed, but made with really kind of high-end materials like coppers and brasses and leather and um, silks and all these kind of beautiful textiles. So really, really quite fancy stuff, kind of home decor, jewelry, clothing, um, lots of gifts. Um, I don't really like fashion just because you get that horrible refund rate when the sizing's wrong or people are a bit cheeky and wear it and send it back. But just a lot of the other textiles that weren't for clothes were really, really cool. And so. the margins are there. I mean, they're really nice. No issues at all? No issues. So um, I got one product, like I took, most of the people in the group got a handful of products. Like most people probably got more than five or 10 new products. Um, and you were getting minimum order quantities of maybe 500 and a couple of dollars a unit and pretty fast shipping. So the sea shipping out of there is a bit slower. And because the, a lot of those products were handmade, it's not quite as snappy as, you know, the easy flow you get with the Chinese manufacturer but definitely unique products and really fun trip to go on too. So that was a bit of an adventure. Yeah. What, what yeah, do you, so. what do you find different culturally when negotiating business with the suppliers in China versus this, or actually you said you didn't do China, but suppliers that you've normally dealt with versus the suppliers in India. So I have done quite a bit in China um, just not exclusively. So okay. my first product was from Nepal and sort of family-owned business that engaged a charity to help hand make this product. So it kind of broke all the rules of all the courses that told you what to pick on Amazon, but I just built a really good relationship with them and they actually helped me find my next few hundred products. So I think I launched about 400 products in my first 18 months, just following my nose by having really good relationships with suppliers. So rather than sort of picking over what comes up on an Alibaba search, my suppliers are bringing me products. So in different countries, that's sort of been the same way I've operated with all the suppliers. So cultural differences, China, you know, they're, if they're capable of showing up at the Canton Fair, you know, they're ready to do big orders and they understand shipping and they're kind of already proven, but then everyone else has got access to them. So they, you know, they'll give you a good quote. Over time, you can negotiate better shipping terms. Things like that are pretty straightforward. In India, um, I mean, the group that we took, it was just in October, just last month. And already people have got samples received that look really good quality. Um, yeah, the shipping times are a little bit slower, just the lead times are slower. And I'm kind of going just Air Express. I don't really fancy doing ships out of Indian ports until I've proven the supply chain a bit first. But just I always um, try to be really level with the suppliers. So rather than sort of whack them around the head on the price per unit, it's much more helpful to grow your business fast if they're more flexible, say, on the payment terms. If you can pay the balance two weeks after the stuff's landed in the States, you've already sold half of it before you have to pay for it. So that lets you grow way faster than it being 10 cents less per unit. So, and I also get my suppliers to kind of keep an eye out for new products for me. So I did a brand last year and I had one supplier. And when we launched the brand, we had 88 SKUs in that thing. And he, the whole thing cost me less than $10,000. But he'd sort of helped me compile all the different SKUs that would go under that main umbrella brand. And so we didn't keep all of them, but it was a really cheap way to launch lots and lots of products in one efficient hit. And the suppliers did a lot of that legwork and negotiating for me. So that's been a kind of a winning strategy. And 
I think Australia and New Zealand were kind of these trading nations, like we're kind of in the middle of nowhere with not much of a local population. So we're used to just buying from overseas and we've always sold to overseas if we export. Um, and so I just think those smaller countries, and like it's nothing that I can quite put my finger on, but I just think we tend to be quite good generalists and quite level with the people we're doing business with. Like we don't sort of pull rank or play silly games pretending we've got some other big boss in the background and you know like it's not so much a negotiation it's like just setting up a partnership like if your supplier I've never had a sample so I don't get samples sent to me I just you know place an order really decisive open the conversation say if this stuff's good I'll place an order today we'll send the minimum we can do to the states straight to Amazon I'll teach you everything you need to know about the shipping and if it sells, then I'll come back and place a big order. Is this based um, on you actually being there seeing the product or is, are you talking about just seeing it online and placing an order? Yeah, seeing it online. Um, maybe it's one supplier's introduced me to another supplier or other products that they've come across at a market or at another trade show they've been at. I do quite a lot of sourcing from trade shows um, because I usually set up a brand and then a brand sort of in some sector and that sector's always got a big trade show or two. So the exhibitor lists on those trade shows you can pick your way through those and um, either do partnerships or private label a lot of those products so so you said 400 products in 18 months yeah did you do this on your own or did you have a team that was helping you with this so I was still at work and I hired a really great girl in Canada so I kind of wanted a native English speaker and someone who was kind of a bit overqualified so she wasn't your average cheapy VA who's you know fine at following instructions and really cheap. She was, you know, a bit overqualified, but that was fine because I wanted a good 2IC who could actually be like an operations manager type of person. So I kind of look for people that aren't too proud to do some really boring admin, but if I'm away traveling, they can field my inbox, make smart decisions, solve problems, spot problems before they happen. That's way more useful to me than saving five bucks an hour on their hourly rate. So someone that's like interchangeable with me day to day is kind of the bar I have for anyone I hire now. So I've got somebody really good working for me in Australia, but I've always had a really small team. Like I don't have lots of moving parts. I definitely never want to build an empire where, you know, I need to be online all day, every day. So two two really good people have kept it all afloat. So those two people help you. For, so I'm just doing the numbers in my head here, but 400 products in 18 months is over 20 products per month. So then you have photography and you got to write the listings and do the keyword research and, and all that. These two people were doing all of that for all yeah, these products? So, yeah, so usually um, had really good help with suppliers on the photography. Um, so just had good relationships and had them do a lot of that locally. Um, the listings, I kind of write the title and bullets myself. And then because they're often in brands, you just write one product description that gets reused quite a bit. Um, and they didn't sort of come through steadily, 20 a month. There were like big waves of, you know, 100 here and another couple. You know, 100 there of another new brand. So um, it was sort of quite lumpy. So there was a big push, a big launch, and then let it roll. So How much did you start with in terms of capital when you started this business? Oh, so I gave up my day job. Um, so I was working as a diplomat for the New Zealand government. And my husband and I were both commuting both in cars. So when I was on maternity leave, I sold one car, paid for a course to do Amazon stuff. And I my first order was three dollars a unit and 75 units from nepal and that's all i've ever put in and it's just bootstrapped and you there. just roll it from there just kind of reinvest it yeah so yeah. it's pretty frugal now i've got scottish heritage i don't like spending any money i don't have to so i've you know not been stingy with 
hiring good staff or product quality, but there's like, I own nothing. Like there's no bells and whistles on anything in the business. Like don't really use many tools, don't have any kind of subscriptions. I've tried to be pretty uh, focused on sort of all those additional courses and things that come along. So I travel quite a bit, but um, really focus on it being profitable. So I can just see in that sort of broader, more mainstream approach, there are lots of people posting all their big screenshots of mega sales and that revenue line looking really healthy. But I could just see that the kind of products that you reverse engineering something that's already competitive and already going well, if you can find that person's supplier on Alibaba in 10 minutes and two clicks, then it didn't really feel like a very defensible position to be in with a business. And, you know, with kids at home and a mortgage, I did, I'm quite a conservative person. So I didn't want to start a business that was making me busy, but not profitable. I had to, well, my original target was 4,000 net a month, which meant I could stop paying the nanny and stop having to go to work. And I'd be about the same because we were paying a full-time nanny to look after the kids and then paying for parking and lunches in town and then part-time work for government. So it wasn't too big a target to beat. Um, Yeah, so I just chose products that I knew if I was not ranking really high, but the margins were really good, and I built a portfolio of those products, then I should be fine. Okay. It was. Yeah. Well, did you you stick with the standard-sized products or oversized, or were you all over? All over. I've done some huge, huge items um actually a lot of the stuff i saw in india was oversized but i still think would be worth worth it because the price because they're so beautifully made i think there'd be some some good stuff there that you could sell for a really high price point you wouldn't need to sell too many of those um yeah so i don't like too cheap so i've never really been in the teens or low 20s that first product i launched i went to town on the packaging and the branding um and reused that brand a lot but that product I sold um, for $28.99. All my competition was selling a bigger pack size for $9.99. And the only thing I'd done differently was um, put it in a 35 cent gift bag. So from early on, I was just really focused on being the absolute best in breed. Yeah. I, so when I introduced you, I said you hit uh, your first million in sales uh, your first year on a product that broke all the mainstream rules. So let's talk about this. What do you mean by breaking all the mainstream rules? Well, there's a few big courses out there um, that teach private labeling. And I don't think anybody's, you know, picking anything that's small and light and fits in the palm of their hand and costs 20 to $50. I think they're pretty well picked over now. But basically that old strategy that, you know, three or four years ago, you could get a lucky home run on a single product that if you picked something that was already in, say, you know, the top ranking of a category, you know, top thousand or so, was in that sweet spot on price, was easy to source from China, was small and light, um, you know, 20-ish, 30-ish dollars. I think those days are over. I think those products, just with the tools out there that let you reverse engineer products, um, that's one factor. So if you're doing really well, people are going to come and copy you now. The other thing is Amazon is hoovering up a lot of those really basic everyday items and sourcing them themselves. They see who everyone's suppliers are. And then a lot of those suppliers are selling those products themselves. Now the manufacturers are just, you know, not doing a great job yet, but it wouldn't take much help for them to do as good a listing when the product's pretty much identical. So those Me Too products and the copycat kind of model is pretty much what's been taught mostly in the past. And even that private labeling is pretty light private labeling relative to the effort I put into private labeling. Um, And so people would kind of choose a product on the numbers. And I chose mine not so much on what's currently working on Amazon today, but rather what do I think people are going to be searching for on Amazon in the future? 
that's not going to be competitive. So as much as choosing the product, I'm choosing a search term that I know I can get onto page one for. So if 86% of product sales are off page one, I don't ever want to be on page two for anything. So I don't really do a launch. I just choose these really simple products that are cheap and simple to launch, do a great job on the branding, um, get some efficiency with the design work, with choosing good suppliers, and then you know send them all in, see what happens. So I don't rig launches. I don't give away products. I've never bought reviews or done like the, the big launch thing. Um, don't do lots of off Amazon promotions. Just kind of totally choose products for what I think Amazon customers would buy that hasn't been well picked over by all the other Amazon sellers. So one of my criteria is if it fits all the criteria of those mainstream courses, I won't sell it. So I quite like things like oversize or, uh, you know, restricted sort of people are getting more into those restricted categories now, although Amazon's tightening up there pretty quickly at the moment. So um, never did supplements or anything like that, just kept well out. So my background's completely different to most Amazon sellers. There's lots of, you know, internet marketing boys who are pretty techie. I am not techie at all. Um, but I think just the system I was using to choose products has been working pretty steadily and hasn't sort of been affected by all the other trends on Amazon. So just sticking with that, doing what's been working, keeping on doing it. So you're finding, these, you're finding these products by going to trade shows. Uh, is that where most of them are coming from, would you say? Um, more actually just walking around in life, looking in magazines, looking at what's happening in social media, um, looking at things I buy. I've got a particular sort of few pockets of demographics I really like. So I've got kind of 10 subcategories of products on Amazon that have always done really well for me. Um, and in those areas, there's not much competition, but there's a really clear benefit to the user and they're not sort of obvious to the other sellers. So um, I've had pretty good fun mining those. and. Um, so you find them, yeah, you find them, um, let's say you find it in a magazine, you go, this fits the criteria for one of the niches that you're after. Then you'll go and check on Amazon to see if it's already being sold. And if it's not, then you get into it. Or is it okay that it's being sold? You're just going to improve on it and then uh, outsell that person. Yeah. So I want to be the number one spot. It's a bit like the old G thing. If they can't be number one or two, they didn't do that line of business. So I don't want to sort of be own, I don't want to have to rely on promotions or aggressive, really fine-tuned pay-per-click to win the sale. I want to easily be the best in breed of that product. So um, I don't mind if the volume's low because I think, you know, I'll be able to promote a better product. Um, and I think just the person that can do the most low-cost launches kind of wins in this game. So I've got suppliers now that'll be really helpful and give me a whole range of products, pretty low MOQs. Um, and help me just sort of experiment once I, because I know the niches I'm in pretty well. Um, yeah, I wouldn't ever, I'd never win in supplements because my strategy just sort of doesn't work there. You've got to do the big giveaways and, you know, tricky stuff with URLs and all that fancy pay-per-click stuff, really aggressive. So I'd rather it was much more passive, but much better margins. So part of my research is sort of what's currently working on Amazon. I've kind of got three things. In fact, I've got four things. So my little assessment of product about a third of the weightings on current demand. But I get really nervous relying on the data coming out of those tools. Like, you know, Merchant Words is fine, but the numbers on products of mine that I'm selling are way off. So I had a product, I was Amazon's choice, spot number one, page number one for months. Merchant Words was saying there was 1.6 million searches a month for that keyword, and there just wasn't. And then they re-released -re their software 
you know, a few months later and they said, oh, no, there's 5,000 searches a month. But I kind of picked that product partly on the demand from that tool. So I really distrust most tools. Um, you know, just the, the BSR gets thrown around all over the place when people are doing promotions that you can't see or seasonal stuff or the best selling ones out of stock the day you look. You know, it's just I don't like to rely on the tools. So anyway, about a third of the waiting comes from the current demand, as best as I can guess it, from the tools that I don't totally trust. Then about a third from the level of competition. So I sort of score at low, medium or high competition. If it's high competition, I stop there and then. And pretty much only usually go ahead if it's very low competition and I'll be comfortably on page one and preferably the top of page one. And then a third of the waiting is kind of on the numbers. So that's a combination of the margin, uh, the actual cost of, you know, that first MOQ and getting started. And then a bit of the numbers thing is also um, the volume, but more focused on the margin than the volume. I'd rather have 10 products with great margin, but not very high volume than one rock star product that everyone else is going to catch on to pretty quickly. And then the last bit's this kind of X factor. So where I think I've got an edge or I understand that demographic better, or I can get an exclusive agreement with that supplier and they promise not to sell to anyone else on Amazon. Um, so being able to do that with really small MOQs, get exclusive deals with suppliers, things like getting a subscription box, um, uh, anything consumables good, um, not supplements though, um, what else is in my X Factor list? So I've got a big list of things that, you know, really, if it meets some of those things on the X Factor list and the other stuff's okay, then I'll hit go and see what happens. And I like to be able to sell the brand later, so kind of it being brandable and definitely being able to have a point of difference, like might be an information product or a membership to an online club or something else that goes with the physical product makes it just so much stickier for those customers. Do you keep it uh, one brand per account or do you go more than no. that? No. So people always ask me this because it gets, you know, layers within layers. So the thing I've done is traded from New Zealand the whole time with a New Zealand limited liability company. I've had multiple Amazon accounts and gated and approved. And then I've had more than one brand in a lot of those accounts. And then I've sold a couple of those accounts, but I've sometimes kept one brand back out for myself. Like there was a new one that hadn't contributed much to the valuation, but I had high hopes for its future and needed to sort of seed another account of my own. So I'd rather keep it simple and focus on getting the sales up. And then you can slice and dice stuff up later. Like when I sold my last business, I'd only offered it for US and Canada markets. And I was going to keep that brand for myself for the UK and Europe. But then they just the buyers of UK of the US company or that Amazon account in the States said, Oh, we're paying cash, what extra would it cost to take UK and Europe? We just want to keep the whole package together. It's like, well, it'll be this much more than they paid that. So that worked out kind of fine. But I'd rather do a bit of admin around the sale time when people are starting to wave big checks around than make it too fiddly short term trying to predict what's going to happen two years down the track. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you go after stuff, you want to make sure that they have good margins. What's a good margin for you or an ROI or both? Um, I like kind of at least 30%. Like I don't want to be anywhere under that. So the last product I did, that range, the average cost of goods was about a dollar, dollar twenty or so landed. Sale price well into the 20s. Um, and a repeat purchase like everyone was getting it on subscribe and save as a consumable product. So I'm a bit more lenient on the margins if it's a consumable product or if I think um, it's going to sort of grow in volume over time. Uh, but I've had, you know, some stunning margins. The ones where it's tight, 
I just feel differently about those products. I don't love them quite as much and I don't feel as motivated to, you know, invest in them because they're not going to win as much back for me. So I've kind of got like a rolling portfolio when I'm sort of getting low on stock on something. I'm like, do I restock that or have I spotted a better idea for that cash that's being released? And I don't like to kind of go into debt. I haven't partnered with anyone. Um, I've had lots of offers for that. And I just kind of like to make pretty quick decisions on my own based a lot on the sort of gut instinct as much as anything else and quite like to just move quite fast and just experiment. So like experimenting with Amazon Australia and handmade products and I've been doing pretty well in grocery. That's been a good category for me over the last 12 months. So. Where, where do you get the, the grocery categories from? Where, which country? Uh, China, Sri Lanka, India, in the States. Okay. So you do get, you, you buy consumables from China? Because I know that's one of the things a lot of people try to stay away from, but you can find some, some interesting things. No, well, the supplier I've got there, I've got a good relationship with, and they supply a really, really big brand in the States, like one of the biggest companies in the States. So I knew that their paper trail was squeaky clean. Like there's no way, like that company is under such close scrutiny that I knew if they were good enough for them, they'd definitely be good enough for me. And they've been awesome actually. And I met them in person in China and just got a good feel for them. Um, so that, that product went really well. And it is one of those products where the best product in the world is from China. Whereas a lot of the times, you know, there'd be some pharmaceutical thing and it's cheaper from China, but not better. But that was actually a natural product. Yeah. It's best from China. When you sell your product or what, sorry, when you sell your company, do you have trademarks in each one of those or is that not that important to you? Yeah, so the two businesses that I've sold, I had had trademarks, but now the trademark game's changed a bit because you need it for brand registry and it's sort of an earlier on expense. And because I'm so stingy, I don't normally get a trademark until the product's really proven itself. So I do a search on that test database to check it's clear and I'm not going to bump into someone else's trademark. And then I get live and listed and selling. Uh, with that brand name and I usually grab a cheap domain but I never spend more than two or three dollars on the domain name but just like a placeholder and I'll get a placeholder Facebook page just because later if it's not a kind of a hardcore Amazon FBA buyer they go like how can you have an e-commerce business and not have a website and not have a Facebook page what have you been doing all this time and you go well I've been doing Amazon but I think just to get that domain maturing even if it's not really anything there just a placeholder it kind of makes it easier to sell you've got to list all your digital assets and might as well just grab it when it's cheap and available. And if somebody else sees you do well, they come and buy it off before you can. So that's annoying. So I think probably when it was, you know, 10 or 20K a month, I'd look at getting a trademark filed just for the US. I don't think it's added a lot of value to the sale price, but now brand registry, I'd probably do it a little bit sooner than I have previously. How much did you sell your first company for? You had two companies you sold, right? Yeah, so the first one was uh, well into seven figures US. So that was 18 months old. And it was sort of selling, it was going up and up month on month. It sort of hit 250K a month at the end, you know, in the middle of the second year. I'd had a bunch of lightning deals um, in my first quarter four that just went ballistic. And then I was like, well, it's going to tail off in the new year. That's, you know, that was a nice spike. I enjoyed that while it lasted. And then the following quarter one was better again. Um, and they were kind of health products. They weren't seasonal or gifty products. And then our tax year here ends at the end of March. And so I tidied up all my numbers, had everything filed and squared up and knew the numbers. As I've got a friend who's a broker in LA who does e-commerce exits. He's Australian. Uh, and I sort of got in touch with him. It's like, oh, what do you think this is worth? And he was like, oh, I'd get you seven figures for that tomorrow, I'm pretty sure. So I said, 
go for it. So he sent an email out to his list and uh, got a great offer. Got an offer. What kind of sales multiples do you get off your your yearly net? So it's about three times my annual net profit. And I think that's about as good as it gets on a sort of a straight Amazon product line. I mean, if you do a subscription business, it can be times 10, which is why I always really like a business that's got products in that could be a subscription business, even if I don't do it myself. But just, you know, if I hold on to it for a long time, that's something I could do with it in yeah. the future. You said the first one was 18 months old. What about the second one? How long before you sold that? 18, 18 months on the dot as well. Is 18 months um, kind of where it just randomly hit or have you heard that 18 months is where you need to be? That's where you need to be. So okay. the kind of the minimum threshold would be 100K net profit US and 18 months trading data, just so it kind of gets rid of any seasonal flukes or beginner's luck. Um, it starts to sort of settle into a pattern and they can see the growth year on year that wasn't part of a launch or anything. It's like, that's where it's going to head. Um, yeah, so both both were really good buyers. Cash, simple. We went off and lived in Bali for three months after the first sale. Nice. Nice little holiday before yeah. I started school. <laughs> that's great. So yeah, try and kind of keep it all in perspective. Like you can make a lot of money in these businesses, but you know, got young children, kind of want to have a lifestyle business don't want to work harder than I did in a day job. And yeah, just want to sort of cap the downside as much as crank the upside. So try and play it pretty safe. Don't do any gray hat stuff at all. Don't do, you know, super URLs. Don't do viral launch stuff. Don't do giveaways. Don't buy, you know, don't go into that review world. So I've had products selling this year, $30 a pop for the units, 30 sales a day. Do you launch with any reviews at all on a product? Zero? No, I turn pay-per-click on auto. And then once the account's a bit bigger, I'll use Celix or something to track the numbers. But really, we just actually prefer All these tools are often, you know, pretty clever, sometimes a bit too clever. All I really want to know, I've got like a spreadsheet that my VA does manually. And it's a bit clunky. It's a few hours work. But then we go through every column, every line together and really know the numbers in the business. So we know revenue. Um, we know what the Amazon fees were for those sales. We know um, cost of goods. We know the cost of shipping, and that can vary. So some of those tools get a bit lost if you were doing cost of goods with air shipping and then it moves to sea shipping, like it goes back through. So it's like I just like to do a snapshot at the end of each month, do a stock take each month so you know for your management accounts what assets you own as well as what your cash flow is doing. Um, so know the sale price, uh, know your margin as a percentage and know your margin as a dollar number. And then it's just all totally transparent which products are earning you the most money. And then based on that, stock up on the things that are earning you money. And if something, you've got to drop the price to make the sale, move on and not be too precious. So, so Sophie, let me ask you this. What We've been talking about all the cool things that you do. What mistakes do you see a lot of sellers making? Going for products that are too competitive, thinking that the safest bet is to do what's already working, but that's actually the riskiest thing because you've got to fight really hard for the sale. Um, I think uh, just playing a really short game. So if you do a bit more work to really distinguish your product, have a real point of difference rather than just a me too product, then there's actually a real reason for somebody to buy that product. So this sort of idea that if you just turn up with the same sort of thing at the same sort of price, you'll automatically get some market share. Well, that's fine today, but next week, someone else with the same strategy will come in and share it again and again, and suddenly you just dilute it up to nothing, and the bottom falls out the pricing on that product. 
So I think a lot of people, it's a lot of the courses selling how to do Amazon really dumb it down too much. It's quite a complicated business. I mean, you've got staff, you've got products, you've got international international logistics, you've got marketing, you've got quite grunty analytics to deal with. And I think a lot of people don't have good business skills or good decision making or good strategy around the product selection. So I'd say if you focus 80% on a good product selection strategy and then just have a good machine built to automate the on Amazon stuff, you're not going to win or lose the game with how much you crank your promotions. That's just going to put your revenue up or down and your margins probably get worse the more you do of that. But if you're choosing a product that's profitable and in demand, but without too much competition in that sweet spot, even though the volume looks lower than most people would go for, that's where I'm happiest playing and been helping a lot yeah, of people choose just products. Just scale that out. Just have a bunch of those products. As you said, yeah, 400 products. <laughs> yeah. So. You don't need 400. No, yeah. no. That, and you're doing so. you're doing it in in a short amount of hours per week too, so that's pretty awesome. That's that's kind yeah. of what people should shoot for. If you yeah. can go back five years and just talk to yourself, what kind of advice would you give? I think people can get really hooked on the dollars and the zeros in their bank account and the revenue line, but forget about the profit and what their life looks like. So um, yeah, I get people coming to me in a real tangle. You know, they've got products running at a loss. You know, they're getting their accounts closed. You know, they've just been really pushing it rather than playing it safe and actually coming up with a product that people want. So it's like, it's a real business selling real products to real people. And it's just the case that Amazon is the best place in the world at the moment because that's where customers are looking for products. You don't pay for the traffic and they trust Amazon so much your conversion rate's awesome. So if you just choose good quality products and put them on Amazon, you'll probably have a really good business. But it's just everybody gets really caught up in like the tactical level of gaming on Amazon or outmaneuvering their direct competition. And so for a while, I was like in Facebook groups that were just, you know, the sky is falling. Amazon's increased a fee on this. And it was like just too insular and too Amazon centric. And it just so happens Amazon's a great platform to sell awesome products on. But really put your effort onto the products and not take on more than you can chew. Like people get into horrible debt. They forget their taxes. Um, you know, there's just no margin left by the time, you know, they've paid for these giveaways and done these bonkers promotions and got that sort of shiny object syndrome. So just like products chosen for Amazon is all you need to do well to do well. Okay. How, how many accounts, by the way, do you have right now? Do you just have the one Amazon account or multiple? Uh, three or four. So I've got one that I use for demo purposes, one that's brand new and pretty exciting. That's actually one where the minimum order quantity is a million units, but you know, I've got to live a bit and see what happens. That's cheap, but still a million of them. Wow. Okay. And you've, <laughs> you've asked, you, you separate them all. Do you ask for permission from Amazon or do you just set them up individually, separately, completely and just go with it? Yeah, no, I get permission. So I've got a nice little paragraph that seems to work. It doesn't always work the first time, but if you send it off a few times to sell a performance, it always comes back. So the line I use is sort of around, um, uh, so it's been true each time as well. Like I've got a business partner, which is like the person buying the business off me. I've got a, an investor coming on board. I want them to be involved in this brand, but not this brand. They're currently on the same account. Please could I have a new account to shift this other stuff over to so that they've got visibility of our joint account but they don't see my other brand. And that's what it's every time. The, do you have to make sure when you're doing that that it's completely separate from anything you're selling on the first account? Do they care? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they go, well, 
and I say in that email to them, I won't have the same bank account or credit card and I won't be competing in the same niches or categories at all, completely separate brands. And I even tell them what the two brands are, this one and this one need to be separated. This one, I'll have a business partner on this one. I want just for me to see. Do you send this before you've set up the second account or after you've already created it and said, here's the two accounts? Uh, before I create the other one. Before the, yeah. and then you go and do it. Permission. Okay. Yeah. Normally <laughs> permission, in, yeah. Forgiveness, not permission, but with Amazon, That's permission's right. quite good. But I've never had a hijacker because uh, I choose these quite quirky products. I've never had an account closed or listings blocked. Mm-hmm. Just like life's pretty drama free if you keep out of those really aggressive tactics. Right. And okay. play it really straight with Amazon. So like there's things that people are doing now, like um, whether it's a giveaway at a launch or pushing out, you know, follow up emails for reviews. And even if you word them pretty carefully, you do hear of people getting calls on those occasionally. But Amazon's not had a blanket thing. We're stopping these big giveaways. We're stopping these big launch tactics to get ranked. It's sort of in that gray area, though, if they decided to interpret their policy you're rigging the ranking by doing these massive giveaways at launch time, then, you know, there'd be a whole load of people gone burger. You know, that's their strategy to launch competitive products. So I just don't want to be at the mercy of a future Amazon policy change that could kill my business. So some of that stuff's not quite in the spirit of what Amazon wants. They want lots of choice and they want quality products. They want competitive pricing on products. But some of the sellers, I do think, push it a bit. Yeah, I think Amazon turns a, a blind eye I mean, they don't want rank manipulation. The launches are more of keyword manipulation, not really rank. But what happens, and we've seen this a million times, is people can get a garbagey product, something that's not good, to move up to page one, but it only stays there for a day or two and then it falls. So Amazon's got a system that equalizes because people, you know, they're not going to buy something if it's it's bad. So I I don't think they really care that much. Or at least now, I've never heard of somebody getting in trouble for that because I don't think it's damaging reviews on the other hand that's damaging right if you get a bunch of fake yeah. reviews they stick they're there forever and, and it tricks people into buying something they shouldn't yeah in those scenarios they crack down fast so i think that's what they're looking for but it's a it's a yeah. really it's a really nice perspective you know hearing somebody saying i don't do anything that everybody else is doing you know i, I got my own you know my own system and, and it works really well what do you think you're going to be doing this year in terms of revenue off just your uh, private label businesses Oh, it'll, it's a seven-figure year, um, and uh, I sold a big bunch of SKUs in the middle of the year, so that was a nice little cash hit. I was sitting in LA airport and paid off a mortgage in one transfer. Nice. Winning Yay. that day. Um, so the year ahead, I'm doing quite a bit of travel. So I'm taking um, – so this trade show I just went to in October. So I've been coaching people, and, like, lots of the coaches will have a retreat or, you know – have some gig at some hotel and state somewhere to get everyone together. But my coaching clients are all around the world. And I was going to go to this India trade show on my own. It's just like, well, if anyone wants to come, pile on in, we'll make a trip of it. So I had 27 people and it was so much fun. So um, I'm going to do a couple more trips like that next year. So one to China in April, Canton Fair, and then October India again. So um, that was really good. And I've got a local partner in India, my business partner over there. So he was really helpful on the ground, helping with sort of local customary stuff as well as um, helping suss out suppliers and someone to follow up after orders are placed. So if, um, people, if people want to learn more about this sort of stuff, your product selection techniques, and just get you know in touch with you, what would be the best way to do that? So one's aspiringentrepreneurs.com forward slash membership, that's Product University, and then aspiringentrepreneurs.com forward slash 
coaching is um, where you can register your interest for the next coaching group. And then I only take people that are members of that on trade shows. So kind of want people to have been well-trained before we're off trotting around the globe together looking at cool products. So Great. Okay. And then we'll tag you as well in our Facebook group so that if anybody has questions or if you want to respond to them, uh, you, it can be done there. And guys, if you're not part of the Facebook group, it's called the FBA High Rollers. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been really cool. I love your perspective on everything. Yeah, I, maybe I'll join you on one of these trips that you're, that you're doing. Sounds cool. I've always wanted to go to India. We'll take it from there. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have a chat. Thank you. You've been listening to the AMPM podcast hosted by Manny Coates. For more information, insider tools, and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit ampmpodcast.com.